Good morning, church family. My name is Megan Banner, and I'm going to be reading the scripture verse for today. Um, Psalm 73. In the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, you can find the passage on page 575. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I have betrayed your children. When I turned to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My spirit and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your good deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Megan. We are continuing today to look at some of the Psalms. Our summer series is taking us through the book of Psalms. And um, when I read the book of Psalms, like this one right here, Psalm 73, I just love the honesty of the Bible. I love how honest and real it is. The Bible is full of stories about real people who had real struggles. And these are people with whom you and I can identify. I mean, if you struggle with depression, for instance, so did Jeremiah. If you struggle with feelings of inadequacy, so did Timothy. If you struggle with sexual lust, so did Samson. If you struggle with loneliness, so did David. If you struggle with pride, so did Hezekiah. If you struggle with fear, so did Jonah. And if you struggle with envy, and who doesn't? So did Asaph. Now, who was Asaph? Asaph wrote Psalm 73. You notice the title of Psalm 73. It says, a psalm 
of Asaph. Now, who was he? Well, Asaph was a priest during the days of kings David and Solomon. And more than that, he was a music minister. He was the Jack Beret of the Old Testament. He really was. He led the people of God in worship. Asaph organized choirs and musicians. He himself was a singer-songwriter. He wrote about a dozen of the psalms that we have in our Bibles, including Psalm 73. He was a deeply spiritual man. If you read through his dozen or so psalms, you notice that many of them deal very honestly with feelings of anguish. It seems that he particularly wrote some psalms during the exile exile period when the people of God were far away from their homeland. And he wrote out of deep anguish and yearning for the glory of God and to know God himself better and better. A deeply spiritual person. But Asaph struggled. And one of the things that he struggled with was envy. As you see here in Psalm 73. What's envy? Well, envy is what this guy must have felt. I think you probably have seen this commercial. This man is about to be the millionth customer. I go ahead of him. Instead, we had someone go ahead of him and win fifty thousand dollars. Congratulations! You are our one millionth customer. Nobody likes to miss out. That's why Ally treats all their customers the same, whether you're the first or the millionth. If your bank doesn't think you're special anymore, you need an ally. Ally Bank. Your money needs an ally. (laughs) I just love that commercial. I mean, that guy has to be extremely envious of the fellow who won the contest. Envy is what you feel when you resent the advantages, the character, the benefits, the privileges, the possessions, or anything else like that of another person. And in Psalm 73, Asaph tells us about his envy and what it was that turned him around. So let's look at Psalm 73 in four parts. All right, we're going to divide it up into four parts. First, we're going to look at his creed. Second, his crisis. Third, his course correction. And finally, we're going to look at his renewed confidence. So with those four C words in mind, let's jump into first Asaph's creed. Asaph's creed is in verse 1. He says in that verse, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now see, Asaph knows his theology. He knows what's true and what's right. He's orthodox. He knows what he ought to believe. After all, Asaph is a leader of God's people, as I said. He is a singer in the choir. He's a student of the word of God. That's why the first word out of his mouth in verse 1 is the word surely or truly, certainly, indeed, God is good to Israel. But listen, it's one thing to know what one ought to believe, and it's quite another to actually live out of that belief when confronted with the realities of life in a fallen world. Because no sooner are the words of verse 1 out of Asaph's mouth then he has a crisis of faith. So let's move on to secondly, his crisis. The crisis that Asaph has in this psalm is in verses 2 through 14. Look with me first at verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost 
my foothold. Now, what happened to poor Asaph? Well, you see in verse 3 what happened. What happened is he says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, you can identify with Asaph, can you not? Maybe you come out your front door one day and you see your next-door neighbors all gathered around a BMW Z435i. And you, uh, you say to your neighbors, oh, wow, look at that. What a great car. But what you're thinking is, how'd you get that car? I should have that car. You can't afford that car. And you have an envious heart about that car. Or maybe you're sweating it out on the Stairmaster at the gym and some little thin 20-something walks by. And it just burns you up. You think to yourself, I should have that body. Why can't I lose that kind of weight? You envy her. Or maybe you hear about some friends of yours who just got back from their third vacation this year. Or maybe a friend of yours tells you about a great spiritual experience they've had. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's the whole range of things that you could be envious about. Envy says, I should have that car. I should have that body. I want that vacation. I deserve to have that experience, that promotion, that raise, that husband, that wife. Why do they have such good kids? I should have good kids like that. Why does she have such an understanding mother who lets her do whatever she wants to do? I should have a mom like that. See, that's the voice of envy. And I'm sure almost everybody would say you feel it one way or another almost every single day. We were on our family vacation as you may, may know, a couple of weeks ago, we spent a week with the entire family at St. Augustine Beach. And uh, one day we went into St. Augustine. It's a beautiful city. It's one of our favorite towns to go visit. But as I drove over that bridge going into St. Augustine and looked to my left and looked to my right at all of these yachts and all of these sailboats, I envied those people. How can they have those? Where do they get the money to buy those sailboats and those yachts? I should have that yacht. I should have that experience. That's called envy. Wanting that which someone else has, perhaps even at their expense so that you could have it yourself. Euripides called envy the greatest of all diseases among men. Shakespeare in his play Othello called envy a green-eyed monster that mocks the meat it feeds on. Very graphic way to say What envy is. Envy kills joy. Envy kills hope. Envy kills love. And it almost killed Asaph's faith. Because in verse 2 he says that he nearly slipped off the cliff into the abyss of doubt and unbelief. See, Asaph, here's why he had this crisis. He knew the covenant promises of God. He knew what God had said to the Israelites through Moses. If you obey the terms of my covenant, you will be blessed. You will live well. You will have shalom. It will go well with you. But Asaph looks around him and something doesn't add up. Because the righteous people around him seem to be the ones who are suffering, while he says wicked and arrogant people are prospering. Notice that word prosperity in verse 3. It is the Hebrew word shalom. 
He says these ungodly people, these wicked, unrighteous people who couldn't care less about God, they have shalom. Shalom is something we Israelites, we, the people of God, are supposed to have. God, this doesn't add up at all. Something's wrong with this picture, Asaph is saying in verses 3 through 12. Ungodly people, for one thing, seem very happy. They have no struggles, he says in verse 4. They're free from the burdens common to man, verse 5. Secondly, he seems to think that they appear very healthy. They're very fit. One translation says that they are fat and sleek. You and I probably wouldn't think fat and sleek is a compliment, but back in those days, to be fat and sleek was a sign of God's blessing. They're very healthy. Their bodies, he says there in verse 3, are or four rather, are healthy and strong. They're not plagued by human ills. He looks at these ungodly people and he says they are also not only happy and healthy, but popular. Verse 10, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. These are the movers and the shakers. These are the people that everybody wanted to be like. Fourth, he sees that they are very powerful as well, and he envies their power. Verse 9, he says that their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. And finally, he says they're very successful. Look at verse 12. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. In short, To Asaph's mind, these people who do not know God have it all together. And yet, he says in this psalm that they couldn't care less about God. Pride is their necklace, he says in verse 6. Their hearts are callous, verse 7. They don't give God the time of day. Look at verse 11. He says that they carry on with their lives and they say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? In short, Asaph says in this psalm, it's not fair, God. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I didn't sign on for this. You're supposed to be good to Israel, as my creed says, to those who are pure in heart. I've done all the right things. I've believed all the right things, says Asaph. I've tried to honor you and obey your laws. And what have I gained for it? Nothing. You see verse 13? He may speak for some of you this morning where he says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Haven't you felt that way at times? What good is it that I have personal devotions? What good are these spiritual disciplines that I'm going through doing for me? I see a lot of people out there who don't even have a Bible and they seem to be doing okay. Why should I keep myself sexually pure until marriage? Most of my friends don't worry about that, and they seem to be doing fine. See, this is the voice of Psalm 73. Disappointment with God, call it that. Disappointment with His ways. Not understanding how God works at times. All day long, he says in verse 14, I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning. See, this is why I said the book of Psalms is very honest. Asaph speaks for some of us who envy the ungodly for their privileges 
and for their blessings. Now, before you pile on Asaph, maybe some of you want to pile him, pile on him right now. Before you do that, before you accuse him of engaging in a pity party, you need to realize that he's asking a very reasonable question. And the question that Asaph is asking is, is God just? Is God good? Can I trust God? Can I believe his promises when he tells me something that he's going to do? Job asked those same questions. The whole book of Job is a question about the justice of God, the righteousness of God. So did the author of Ecclesiastes. Is God good? Is God fair? So did the prophet Habakkuk. So have I. So have many of you asked those questions. So what does Psalm 73 say? to the Christian who is dying of a cancer that does not go away despite years of prayers for healing. What does Psalm 73 say to that Christian mother and that Christian father whose son or daughter has left the path of faith despite years of faithful Christian nurture, love, and teaching? What does Psalm 73 say to that Christian husband or wife whose marriage is not getting any better? Or to that single person who has prayed for a spouse and prayed for a spouse and stayed true to the Lord but cannot seem to find a mate. Those are the kinds of questions that cause many Christians to wonder, is God good? Is verse 1 true? Is God really good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? All those people, all those questions are exactly where Asaph is in Psalm 73. They're asking, where's the goodness of God? And the answer to that question, is God good, is found in the third part of Psalm 73. And I'm calling that Asaph's course correction. His course corrections in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Ah, there's the breakthrough. There's the turning point in Asaph's experience. Asaph gets a new perspective on life in a fallen world, and his doubt and his envy turn to faith and contentment. Or perhaps we should say that Asaph recovers the perspective that he's always had, but he temporarily lost it, temporarily lost it because of his envy of the ungodly. Now, how did that happen? How did Asaph make this turn? How did his perspective change? We're told in verse 16 that he went into the sanctuary of God. He went into the sanctuary of God. That is to say, he went to the temple. He went to church. He engaged in public worship. He met with God's people and he did what God's people do when they get together in church. They sing hymns. They listen to God's word. They pray. They greet one another. They encourage one another. That's what we do in church. And that's what Asaph went to do. It was in the temple that Asaph's envy began to turn into contentment. You know, the older I get, if you don't mind me reflecting a little bit personally, the older I get, the more I value 
what we're doing right now. Early on in my Christian experience, it was having my personal time with God. It was reading my Bible. It was praying. It was engaging in those spiritual disciplines. That was the teaching that we were pretty much exposed to in the beginning days. And that was very, very important. It was vitally important for me as a new Christian to have my time with God and to walk with God and to die to sin and to live to righteousness and so on and so forth. And I'm not discounting the importance of all those things. I'm also not discounting the value of life groups. My goodness, that's a big part of my job. I'm not discounting the value of Bible studies and other things that we do during the week. But listen, people of God, something happens on Sunday morning when we come to church that only happens in church on Sunday morning. I'll be honest, there have been some Sundays when I've dragged myself to church on Sunday. And I get paid to be here. I suspect I speak for many of you who drag yourself to church on Sunday morning. You know you should come. So you get up out of bed and you come to church on Sunday morning. But listen, what happens so often is is as I sing these songs and as I talk with you and as I hear God's word and as I are led in prayer and those types of things, I get a course correction. I get a reality check. My perspective turns and changes. And suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is what life is really all about. That's why it's concerning that many professing Christians have such a low view of Sunday morning worship. Oh, I'll I'll come when I want to, come when I feel like it. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. But I'm simply saying that it's so important that we gather together on Sunday morning to enter the sanctuary of God. There's no telling what God can do for you when you're here with God's people on Sunday morning in the sanctuary of God. Asaph says, that's when I understood the final destiny of the wicked. And so now let's end our study of this psalm with Asaph's renewed confidence. In verses 18 through 28, he tells us about his renewed confidence, his new convictions, his renewed perspective on life as it really is. And basically in these closing verses of Psalm 73, Asaph, as I see it, preaches the gospel to himself. He recalls, he, re, he brings to mind four things that he knows to be true. Four truths that bring him to his senses that shake him up and say, no, wait a second, stop envying the ungodly. Let's think as I, as I should about these matters. Four truths. Let's go through them all. Truth number one, although unbelievers may indeed prosper in this life, they will be punished in the life to come. Although unbelievers may prosper in this life, they will be punished in the life to come. Verse verse 18 says it very clearly. Surely you place them, that is the unrighteous, the ungodly, you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. See, one day it will not matter that ungodly people were rich or famous or beautiful 
or that they lived in designer homes and drove BMWs or sailed in yachts or had all that this world might offer. Not that there's anything wrong with being rich and famous and driving a BMW and having a yacht and that type of thing. But sadly, for those who put their hope in those things, who rest their hopes upon those material possessions and those fleeting experiences, sadly, on the last day, they will discover that they have neglected the one thing that matters in life, and that is having a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They've put it off, they've put it off, they've put it off, and they will face an eternal hell apart from God. What good will those riches and those things have? What good will they do in that day? when they find out only too late that they put their they bank their hopes on all the wrong stuff truth number 2 the flip side of that although believers may indeed suffer in this life they will be celebrated in the life to come although believers may suffer in this life and we do we will be celebrated in the life to come verse 21 says this When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In other words, he says, I was thinking like a dumb animal. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up into glory. Think of that, believers. Afterward, he will take you into glory. You who suffer with cancer, with depression, or with some other chronic, debilitating problem, He'll take you into glory. Think of that. You who have denied yourselves and who have carried your cross and given your money and served without reward, He will take you into glory. Think of that, you who have wept over your sin and fought your temptations and sought God and sought God in spite of your failures. He'll take you into glory. Think of that, you who have felt so unworthy and so unwanted. You who have been lonely and rejected and abandoned in this life. He'll take you into glory. God says to you who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you are always with Him. Always. Even when you feel very far away from God. You may not feel that you're holding on to Him very well, but verse 23 says that He holds you by by your right hand. And He's not going to let you go. How can this be? How can it be that God is always with you? Is it because you're such a good person and you try so hard and you do these things and you go to church and you read your Bible? Is that why he will always be with you? No. It's because Jesus Christ went to the cross to rescue you from your weakness and sin, to give you his righteousness and to bring you into the family of God. That's why you can know that he will always be with you. Always holding you by your hand. He sings over you with joy. And he cannot wait until he brings you home to be with him forever. Truth number three. This world is terribly broken. And inherently dissatisfying to the child of God. 
Say it again. This world is terribly broken because it's broken. It's inherently unsatisfying for the child of God. And I, I love Psalm 73, verse 25. Look at verse 25. Asaph affirms, Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Yes, there are many beautiful places that we could go in this world. I want to go to some of them. There are beautiful things, many wonderful things to do, many wonderful things to have and to enjoy. But listen, and many of you have discovered this already, even when you've tasted some of those things, the hunger quickly returns. It's like that feeling that we all have two days after Christmas. The hunger has returned. We need another pleasure and another possession and another experience to be happy. Because life in this world is inherently unsatisfying. Not until you're with Jesus and without sin will you be fully satisfied. And truth number four, finally, because of that, if three is right, if one, two, and three are right, then truth number four follows. Don't envy the ungodly when, they're pro- when they prosper. Instead, rejoice and be glad that you have the most wonderful thing in the world, a relationship with God through Jesus. Rejoice and be glad that you know God and He knows you. Verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion is a beautiful word. It means a share or inheritance or allotment. And Asaph, being a Levite, would have had a great understanding of that word. Why is that? Well, it's because the Levites, and he was a Levite, owned no real estate in Palestine. All of the other 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, Judah, and so on and so forth, all of those other tribes had allotments. They had territory in the Holy Land, but not so the Levites. They didn't receive any allotment of territory. The reason is, is that God was their portion. God was their allotment, their inheritance. He was enough for them. And so is God your portion if you're trusting in Christ. means He's enough. He's enough. He is the treasure that far exceeds and far outlasts any other. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon on this psalm. And he said this very pithy saying, He that has God has all. He that has God has all. Do you believe that? God is your portion when your marriage is an unhappy one. God is your portion when you're single. God's your portion when you don't like your job or can't find a job. God's your portion when you're sick and you're not going to get any better. God's your portion when your child is walking the path of unbelief. God's enough. See, Asaph learned something that's very, very counterintuitive. The blessed life, the life of shalom, verse 3, is not achieved by what you have or what you do or what you know or how far up the ladder you climb or how much you own. It's measured by who you know. 
Better, it's measured by who knows you. Did you know that God calls you his portion? That's right. God calls you his portion. Deuteronomy 32.9 says that the Lord's portion is his people. If you're God's portion, he can be your portion. He can be enough. So make the Lord your refuge. Be near God. Preach the gospel to yourself every day like Asaph does. Trust in the finished work of Christ. Let God be your portion. Let him be enough. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Psalm 73. Thank you for its honesty. Thank you for Asaph who loved us enough and loved you enough to get real with us about his experience, his envy. And Lord, we uh, admit that we too fall prey to envy. We envy the arrogant. We envy the ungodly. We envy our neighbor. We, we envy one another. Father, forgive our sins. Forgive our restless discontentment with the many blessings you've given to us. Thank you for the gospel therapy that is the book of Psalms. And Lord Jesus, thank you most of all that you came to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die so that we might be held by our right hand by God, our creator, our redeemer, and our friend. Lord, we ask you to remind us that you are our portion. Remind us of that tomorrow when we're going to work. Remind us of that when we have our next argument with our spouse. Remind us of that when we're disappointed with our parents or our friends. Remind us of that when the bank account is empty, when the car's in the shop, when the body doesn't feel good. Remind us of that when we feel very far away from you. You are our portion. You are enough. Lord, help us to believe that, to preach that gospel to ourselves daily so that we might agree with Asaph that it's good to be near God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.